Welcome to the Jinx Dance Media Podcast. This is your host, Jude, and this is where I'll be chatting to you about how to design and create high-quality dance events and creative dance content. I'll be covering topics ranging from fundraising, marketing, production, content creation, design, and so much more so that you can have all the tools and resources you need to stand out and build genuine connections with your audience. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's podcast episode. Today, we will be continuing the conversation with Eclipse. So this is part two of that previous conversation that I had. If you have not already listened to that episode, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that one first before continuing to listen to this episode, as it's going to provide a lot of context for the conversation for today. So without further ado, we'll jump right back into it. I definitely want to talk more about that, like specifying how much you want to be paid and being able to negotiate that for yourself. I'm very curious like what your thoughts are on, in my experience, a lot of times street dancers think that the opportunities available to them are so scarce or like few and far between that they're willing to kind of accept less than they deserve or that is fair for them. I've seen that a lot. And I've also seen a lot of instances specifically with Like you said, like with corporate events, a lot of those places have more money to throw around. So they're willing to spend more. But with like arts institutions, nonprofits, universities, things like that, like they tend to be a little bit more frugal. And oftentimes I have seen instances in which they are kind of like, oh, well, like they, they try to they try to give you a lot less money than what is fair. And I've had instances where like I've tried to ask for a certain rate and people have cited the fact that like, oh, well, modern dancers don't get paid that much or just regular dancers don't get paid that much. And I think in general, taking this even broader, not just specific to street dance, like the dance industry has a huge problem where dancers get underpaid And it's because the dance industry is so saturated. Dance studios are like a dime a dozen. Like you can find a ton of kind of crappy dance studios anywhere you go. There are very few that are operating on a very high level with high budgets. And the same goes for dance companies that perform. The same goes for like dance teachers. If you look online, like even if you just look through like dance teaching jobs, like most of them pay like 20 an hour. And they want you to do all these different styles like ballet, modern, jazz, hip hop. That's just not realistic. And so like, I don't know, I think there is a huge problem in the industry in general where the market value is so low because we have like this starving artist mentality and we continue to accept such low payment because it's like, oh, well, you're doing what you love and that should be like fulfilling in and of itself. And therefore you shouldn't be getting paid as much. And I think that's a problem. But then that also disproportionately affects street dance artists even more who are considered oftentimes like even lower on the totem pole compared to like these ballet modern dancers and stuff too. So I'm curious like what your thoughts are on that and like how we can start to change that perspective and advocate for ourselves more and just you know, continue to raise like the market value for what it is that we do so that it becomes more common practice to pay street dance artists more and more fairly as well. Yeah. I mean, there really is that fear and 
it's it's unfortunately a historical evolution. Originally, street dancers were not allowed in studios. They were not allowed to perform on stage in public. They were not allowed to express their art forms outside of the public areas, you know, sidewalks, streets, stuff like that. And it's kind of like the evolution of the street performance as well. How when we see like street performers having elaborate costumes and things like that, they had to do that, you know, in order to build an audience. So when you come from a history where you already think that people don't value what you have to offer, you're starting behind the line, right? You internalize that. And then that's, you know, unfortunately, an American social problem in general, when it comes to, especially people of color, the things that people of color create are just undervalued in general, period, because of where they come from. Our biggest challenge as street dance artists is to understand that as a reality and decide not to accept it anymore. We have to decide that that is not an acceptable way for anybody to think. And then we also have to decide to tell the truth because America is just one place in the world. When you leave the United States, American street style dance is a worldwide phenomenon. Even in the United States, you start breaking or popping or freestyle dancing of any kind. People love it. They gravitate towards it. This is why studios and, and this, this ridiculous industry standard of dance has borrowed, stolen so much from street dance culture, even certain techniques. And we're talking about street dance in general, but really it's, you know, black vernacular dance in general, all the way back to jazz, where our so-called most celebrated choreographers have borrowed heavily from techniques and ideas from jazz all the way up to move their ideas of dance forward, to create their styles, right? Talking to somebody a little bit ago about Fozzy, Bob Fozzy. He openly admits <laughs> that he was heavily influenced by Black vernacular jazz dance, but he's hailed as this huge pioneer. But most people have no idea of the original Black jazz dance artists from the 20s and the 30s. They couldn't name any of these people. So I say all that to say this. We have to first place value on the thing that we love before anybody else will. So if you don't demand it, nobody else is going to demand it for you. Their goal is to get the thing out of you that they want for the least amount of money that they can offer you. And it's kind of what you mentioned earlier, you know, about we just want to be seen. We just want to be acknowledged. And for so long, street dancers have been ignored. Any kind of attention we're thinking is good attention. And if somebody's going to give me some dollars for that, too, great. You know, in the 80s or in the 90s, that oh, that's good. Sure. Because that was really the only way you were going to get it. Now, this is making me think about even in instances of like, for example, I was talking to a friend recently who said that I think it was Slim Boogie who was uh, judging for Red Bull. 
And they were saying that like Red Bull had asked Slim Boogie to come like two hours earlier to film a video for content. And he said no, because he was like, I'm not getting paid for the video. You guys didn't tell me that in advance. And I think a lot of younger dancers are like, oh, we get to be in a video? Like, that's great content for us. Like, I'd love to do that. And they're not realizing that Red Bull is like actively exploiting them because that is something that you should be getting paid for. Like that's sponsored content. I was doing research, like most dancers should be getting paid at least $100 per one minute video. And then if that video gets more than 10,000 views, they should be getting 1% of all of the views that come after that. So if it's 20,000 views, they get $200. And so it's crazy to me how, like you were talking about, like we sometimes just like want that attention. And because we're so not used to having it. And so I think a lot of people are just so eager that they're not thinking about what they're giving up in terms of like their value when they're saying yes to things like that. And they don't even realize it in the process. But anyway, sorry, continue. I just uh, was thinking about that as we were talking. So no, no, no. That's a great point. It's funny because I was (laughs) I was just talking to Red Bull, our cultural director for the region. I was able to meet. I've had a relationship with Red Bull off and on over the years. And, uh, you know, the, the lady who was our rep here sent me to one of the regional qualifiers for BC1 that they had in Columbus this year. You know, I went there and I met the culture director and she's cool. And uh, I just told her straight up, like, yo, like, I'm interested to hear how you all want to change the game because apparently leadership has really changed across the board at Red Bull. And I said, because street dancers have really, like, left the brand in the mid 2000s right for a while all the way up until recently when they started this new dance your style battle people are starting to come back around but i was like we left the brand because you all were literally just exploiting dancers like you would go into a community you would get what you needed out of that community marketing wise advertising wise and most times you wouldn't leave even any any money. You wouldn't leave any any uh, infrastructure. You wouldn't leave any sort of support for that dance community that you just exploited. And we were kind of we over it. Like even your dancers, your so-called high-level superstar brand ambassadors, they they weren't getting paid what what they were supposed to be getting paid. You know, making like four hundred or, or five hundred bucks or a thousand dollars for a gig like this is red bull dude and these people are this is their job and you're you're only paying them this much money to show up somewhere be there for a whole like weekends or weeks at a time and and they're only getting like a thousand bucks or fifteen hundred dollars like that is a mentality that we have to break and you know of course like slim boogie at this point he's well known enough that he can say that like no, I'm not doing that. And doesn't have to fear financial repercussion. But for the smaller time dancer, like it's much more difficult for the person who's local who lives in like Utah or, you know, some Wyoming where they don't get a lot of opportunities coming their way. Yeah. And they're trying to make this dance thing work. It's much more difficult for them to say no, but if we don't start saying no at the bottom and doing some more research and connecting with other professional street dancers, then we're just going to continue to perpetuate the cycle. I just, it's really interesting that we're having this conversation because I'm actually in the middle of a negotiation for the Cincinnati Music Festival, which is the biggest 
concert year here. We're doing a part of Procter Gamble. They sponsor the fest. And so PNG is responsible for all these, all the brands, right? Swiffer, Tide, you name it, all the household PNG, right? Their base is here in Cincinnati. And last year they they hired a event company called Agar. You know, they basically are in charge of these activation spaces for different brands around the country. They asked us last year to do the Swiffer house. They built like this little house and, you know, we were supposed to help promote the Swiffer, Swiffer Jet brand or whatever. And it was five dancers. We came over, we did whatever. And, um, you know, I quoted them the price and, or they told me what they wanted to pay. And I said, okay. And uh, we worked it out and it was, it was fine. This, they asked me again. I said, okay, but they want to make it big. This is the 50th year anniversary, and they're having all kinds of people show up. Snoop Dogg is going to be there this year. Rock Kim is going to be there this year. Like Jill Scott, like it's going to be some heavy hitters. And I'm like, all right, cool. And they asked for more dancers and more performances and whatnot. And I'm like, all right, cool. So do you have a budget or do you want me to write you a quote? And dancers, listen, this is very important. Always ask people that when they hire you. Say, okay, when they tell you what they want, say, what is your budget? Or do you want me to give you a, you put the ball in their, in their court. You allow them to tell you straight up what they want to spend. When people tell you what they want to spend, now you get to say all these things on your list right here. I can do that or I can't. And this is what it's going to cost for me to do all the things on your list. And this is what it's going to cost for me to do what you have in your budget. Okay. You have to be able to stick to your guns on that. But anyway, long story short, no. I sent them a budget and it turned out they did have a budget, which is what they paid me last year. And I'm like, ain't nobody getting paid what they got paid last year for anything. Like, how you think the same price? You know what I mean? Plumbers don't cost the same. Electricians don't cost the same. Groceries don't cost the same. Nothing. How, this is what we're talking about when we say the the inherent exploitation of dance artists. They think that last year's price is this year's price. No, no. They better go listen to Fat Joe. That's not. So anyway, I quoted her something that was like four times what she had in her. But So then she told me, she's like, I mean, I'll be completely honest with you. We thought we would just pay you, you know, for this much for last year and then add this much on for the extra stuff that we asked for. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I said, this is how we can do this. I can give you this for that. And she was like, oh, okay, well, let me go back and talk to my team. Yeah, because that's the other thing too. Like if you're a company, you plan for raises every year for your employees. You plan for business expenses to increase due to inflation. But why don't you plan for if you're hiring influencers or hiring dancers for their prices to increase because of those same reasons. Like it, it is crazy to me. Cause like, even when I, I used to work in a corporate job doing event planning, we would adjust our budgets at least 10% every year, like increase if we were planning to spend the same amount last year. So it's like, we need to up it 10% because of inflation and maybe additional costs. Right. So like, it's crazy to me that they didn't even <laughs> like consider that and they were wanting to go bigger, but still had the same budget. I'm like, that's, actually just like not smart <laughs> yeah like I, I was like oh okay but that's a big contract 
it, that's thousands of dollars, you know, is potentially on the table. You know, I'm sure that some of the dancers could use, but I know how much work this gig is. Like we're going to be outside five hours, two days, end of July. Last year, each of our dancers went through probably two or three gallons of water. It's intense. And you're dancing, constantly activating the space and freestyle. And then they want to show two 15-minute showcases. Like, dude, you dance. You dance for five hours. Yeah, it's crazy that you say that too, because I just recently sent a proposal, like a project proposal over to a brand that Shadow Puppets is hoping to work with. And they were wanting us to perform like cypher performances at some events they're doing and then film content around that film some other sponsored content and like help with their branding and things like that. And so like I quoted, like they, like I asked them, I was like, what is your budget? And they didn't want to give me a number. So I was like, okay, I can send you a proposal with like, this is all the stuff that you want. I can give you like an itemized list. So if like, I'll give you three custom options, like here's package one, package two and package three at different price rates. And then I'll give you the itemized option. So if you want to customize and build it with your own budget, you can, but that being said, like, it was scary for me to send that proposal to them because it was the first time I was sending a proposal with such like big dollar amounts attached to it. And I'm just like, so scared. I'm like, I don't want to destroy that relationship before it even gets off the ground by putting a number on there that's so high. But at the same time, it wasn't even about me and like how much I wanted to get paid. It's about making sure the people I'm working with are getting paid fairly. Yeah, it was just really scary to like sit there and like send that to them. And I'm still waiting to hear back. So we'll see. Hey, like that right there in itself is a really big point. You know, how much anxiety we have as artists to send people how much it would cost for them to hire us electrician write you your bill this is how much i cost per hour this is how many hours i worked on this job this is what you owe me there is no negotiation there's no chit chat there's no whatever right it's like oh snap okay cool you take it or leave it or whatever like you know people in every other area when it comes to business they write up the numbers and they send you what the numbers are. But we, as artists, when we try to engage in the business practice to take care of ourselves, to take care of other dancers, like I said, this this gig that I'm working on, same as what you were just talking about, I get an extreme love and, and a great feeling out of providing opportunities for other dancers. But I have to make sure that they're gonna be taken care of, right? That's what, we, that's what we're all in this for, right? make sure that people are paid what they're worth based on the gig and the amount of work that's being asked. So if I tell you that this is the hourly rate per dancer, that's what the hourly rate is per dancer. It's not some random number I pulled out of my butt. And the other side is from a business standpoint, you have to make sure that you can sustain the business as well. So when you're quoting people, make sure that you're quoting um, the people need to make that you're hiring plus whatever percent, 10, 15, 20, 25, whatever percent on top to sustain your- I think too, like a lot of it comes from, I would say like a lack mindset that's really been ingrained in us both as like specifically street dance artists, but like as artists and dancers in general, where 
we are so afraid that like there's not going to be another opportunity that comes along and we just are afraid of missing out it's like this might be our chance right like this might be our chance to break in to making money doing this and so like for me personally like sending that proposal was really scary because i had i had to remind myself you can't be afraid like if this person says no then like that just wasn't meant to work out and if you continue to advocate for yourself you will eventually find someone who will pay you what you deserve yeah i don't know it's just definitely um it's it's a fear thing that you have to like really be able to get over and like you said i think it is more common within like arts and like street dance than it is in professions like electricity or like plumbing and obviously it's different because i think a lot of times we think of art as a luxury whereas those things tend to be more necessities right but that being said, it doesn't mean that it's not a service that is valuable or worth spending money on. And I have to remind myself too, like, if I don't advocate for myself to get paid this much, then like, I'm doing all this free labor and this free work. And they're benefiting off of that. I'm not like, that's not going to help me make a business out of this. And so stress over all this extra stuff, you're not getting paid for it. You're not going to reap any real benefit from it because let's face it, all that the person who's hiring you cares about is the thing that they want you to do. So as long as that thing gets mm -hmm. done, they're not really concerned with how much extra work you had to do on the back end to figure out how to make these extra things happen that they asked for. They're just happy that these things yeah. work. And then, as you said, people generally tend to undervalue artists in general. Mm -hmm. And we have to get away from thinking in that way as a society, not just as artists, but as a society. I think that everybody loves artists. They love art. Our entire worlds are consumed by art. And we need to start acting like it and paying artists like it, you know, either creating more opportunities for people so that the prices can be lower if that is an issue for people. But for us as the artists ourselves, we need to make sure that we are asking for what we want and knowing yeah. what the job is and saying, okay, this is a reasonable amount of money to ask for this thing right here. Yeah. And not just being arbitrary about asking for money, like be able to break down what it is that you're charging them for. Like, you know, if you mm -hmm. have an itemized thing, like if they're asking for a bunch of stuff, well, this is what it takes to get this done. And this costs this mm -hmm. and this, this and this costs this, you know? Another thing that like this makes me think of is, oh, well, if I quote at this higher rate and they don't like that rate, they might go with somebody who quotes them at a lower rate. And yeah. oftentimes, fine. like, yeah, and like that, that, that's fine, right? But then too, like, I think a lot of people, because of that, they might set their rates lower because they're mm -hmm. afraid of that. Yeah. And I think what actually is something that we need to reframe our mindset around is like by setting your rate higher, yes, there may be, they may decide to go with somebody who has a lower rate and that person may have like lower quality of work or less experience. But that being said, you setting that higher rate and standing by that, even if you miss that one opportunity, you're not only going to find opportunities that align more with the rates that you want and deserve, but also you're actually raising the market value in the process for everyone else because you're setting a standard of like, this is what my rate is. This is what I think I deserve. And other people who see that and see your rates are going to be like, oh, I didn't know you could charge that much. And they might start to raise their rates to match that. 
And then in turn, you can raise your rates. You start to create a culture where everyone benefits because we're all able to make more money from doing what it is that we want to do instead of feeling like, oh, I have to beat my competitors by setting a lower rate. No, you're actually just driving the market value down and doing that. So even from that standpoint, you can only benefit from valuing your work more than devaluing it just because you're afraid of like losing out to somebody else who doesn't charge as much. So yeah, I don't yeah. know. That's, that's another thought that I have about. <laughs> and it's, no, and that's a very important one because, you know, there are two, two sides to that coin, right? There's always going to be someone who's willing to, you know, sell themselves short. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. people will take advantage of that. I remember years ago, there was a huge issue with that in our DJ community where, you know, DJs were trying to raise their rates in general, but there were still people who were undercutting the standard that everyone else was trying to set. So if people were setting a $100 an hour gig rate and there's still people out there who are accepting 75 you know, it's like, well, you're not helping anybody. You're not helping yourself. You're not helping us. And you're definitely not um, mm-hmm. going to make more money in the future if you continue to, to move forward like this. I think that ultimately comes down to a cultural question as well. Like your community of dancers, everybody getting in a room together and saying, okay, look, even if you we don't agree on how we do things or whatever, everybody does have to get together from a business standpoint and see if there can be an agreement reached at a standard, you know? Yeah. I feel like in that, in that sense, almost you're touching on what would be a union, right? Yeah. Like that, that, yeah. And that, that's interesting. That's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, people like Buddha stretch and many others have actually spoken recently about that, you know, with mm-hmm. even as recently as uh, the Super Bowl situation with the dancers and them not being paid properly. But it all boils down to that collective representation. But we all have to agree mm-hmm. to get together. And, you know, unfortunately, we still have a lot that we have to work on in our community in general. Mm-hmm. I, I do see more people being interested in figuring that out because there's much more opportunity now for street dancers to do more dancing and to not just supplement their income, but to follow a career path, you know, of street dance. So we really are going to have to figure that part out because if we don't, this is what's just, this is just what's going to happen. But in the meantime, if you know that you have a superior product, if you know that what you're going to do is not what those other people are going to do and your prices reflect that, and that's fine. And yes, stand by mm-hmm. what you said is your price. And if they choose to go with somebody, that's going to cost them less money. You know, they're not going to get the same thing that you want to provide. Most people who charge higher rates have a pretty good grasp on what the competition is in their areas. Mm-hmm. So if you know what your competition is and you know that if someone goes with this way, they're not going to get what you're going to give them. Then yeah. you just make your peace with that. But I think generally people aren't like high, like hiring companies. They're just looking at what they want to spend. But I don't think that they're trying to, you know, keep you down or purposely exploit mm-hmm. you. I think that just cap- capitalism is a thing. Yep. And they're always trying to make 
more money for the business. I think that's why we have more responsibility there in terms of creating a higher expectation ourselves that Mm -hmm. then they can be like, oh, well, this is the standard. Because if there's no standard, then of course they're going to shortchange us. Um, But if there's like a standard that like we can like set that expectation, then like they're going to know, okay, this is how much I can expect to spend on something reasonably. So yeah. Yeah. Another thing um, too that I was just thinking about. So we've talked a lot about, I guess, like your experience doing a lot of different things professionally, like, right, teaching, performing, judging even. Uh, We didn't touch too much on that, but like, I know you have a lot of experience doing that too. But I'm curious if someone's trying to make a dance like career for themselves, there's a lot of different avenues people can go down. I'm curious for you personally, like if you could give us a rough percentage of like, this is where my income comes from, from doing these different types of gigs. And then maybe even talk about like the importance of having diverse skill sets and how that can actually help you elevate yourself in your dance career. Because a lot of people think, oh, if I'm just a good dancer, then I can become a professional dancer. But I think there's a lot more that goes into being a professional dancer And the more skill sets you have, the more you can utilize those things. So like, for example, with me, I utilize my dance, but I also utilize my skills in marketing, my skills in event planning, business consulting, right? Those things all contribute to where you kind of find your own unique intersection within the dance industry. So I guess I'm just curious from your perspective, what that looks like for you. And I guess what your advice would be for like other people. Yeah, for sure. For me personally, really, it depends on where you are, you know? Um, and what opportunities are available to you. Um, And that's not to say that you have to just accept what exists because of course you can create your own market doing what it is Mm -hmm. that you like. For me here, like I said, Cincinnati has really been good to me as far as allowing me to explore the creation of a career path for myself. And it kind of goes up and down. Like sometimes I do a lot more performing. At this point in my performance career, am able to charge uh, a lot more money. One performance for me might be the same as three or four teaching gigs. And I'm definitely grateful for that. But of course, those sorts of things come with time, build a Mm -hmm. reputation, you get good at whatever you're doing, and then the money reflects itself. However, in most places, I would say that most opportunities are going to be with teaching. Mm. If you can find steady teaching jobs, and find organizations that are focused on teaching culture, enrichment programs, things that can slide street dance in very easily. And you also want to get in with organizations that work with places that have larger budgets mm-hmm. so that you can get you know, a decent rate. For example, if you're teaching at one school once a week, that's not going to cut it, you know? Dance studios, I tend to shy away from dance studios. Inherently, they're not huge money makers. And so, you know, there's only a certain amount of money that you're going to be able to make out of a dance studio. Not to say that you can't make a good living teaching in a studio. You want to spend a lot more time in the studio than you want. So, you know, find those areas. I would say teaching is probably for me. And uh, performances stack on top of that. Of course, you know, judging here and there is also very, very lucrative. So get good at a lot of different things, and then you can diversify your income streams. That's really the name of the game. Mm. Find as many ways that you can in order to make money using all of your talents to create 
revenue stream in general. And those are this for me, like right now, teaching is the most that I'm doing at this time. But for people who are looking to just make a career, I would definitely find a balance between teaching, performing, and then just make lists of things that you just love to do, like things mm -hmm. that you are naturally good at, and then find out how to apply that to the street dance world. If you are good with numbers, event people generally are not good with numbers <laughs> as far as <laughs> You know, <laughs> when we have to come down and figure out how to pay people or what we should price things or, you know, work out percentages, et cetera, et cetera. If you're naturally gifted at that, offer those services to people, right? Taxes. If you're an accountant, if you went to school for accounting or if you just happen to be good at that sort of thing, offer those services to your local street dance community and be like, yo, like work your taxes out for you. Create like a little side gig for yourself doing that. You know, people wouldn't mind throwing but to look through their taxes, you know, and, and do stuff like that. Think about things that you just love to do. If you're a facilitator, if you're what we do here, we double out as that, you know, we're hiring and get people jobs and, you know, operate in that way. So there are a ton of ways you could go, but definitely find the mm -hmm. ones in your areas that give you the most money. See if you like doing that and then go that route and then fill in all the gaps with the other things. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, So like my, my second to last question, we touched on a lot of different things that are, I guess, I would consider challenges in terms of trying to build like a dance career. But I'm very curious specifically for you, what challenges have you faced? And if you want to either add any new ones or expound on any that we've briefly touched on, I'd love to just hear more about how you've been able to overcome that in your, your personal journey. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is always consistency. Mm -hmm. You know, finding a consistent revenue stream. Uh, essentially, you're working for yourself. And if you're trying to find someone to hire you, pay you what you're worth, I mean, that's great. But it is a difficult endeavor since unless you have other dance experience, for example, I don't train ballet or modern or contemporary or anything like that. So if I'm teaching at a studio or at a school or whatever, I'm teaching street dance. So that limits my opportunities to get more teaching gigs at that spot, as in if somebody calls off, you could sub in, or if they open another class, you can take that class over for a different dance, you know? So that has been a challenge for me. Thankfully, it hasn't been a terribly bad one of recent time because since after COVID, a lot of these opportunities came back. Plus, you know, after the college year or after the school year for universities or elementary, when those gigs stopped, the after school program stopped, regular school program stops, you're in the summertime, you're like, uh, what am I going to do? Well, in the summertime is when all the intensives are happening. So make sure that you're, I try to make sure that I'm connected to people who are hosting intensives, like long sessions, two, three, four, six weeks. And then I can be sure that I'm going to have a decent revenue stream through the summer for that. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's all, it's a kind of a roller coaster. You got to stay on top of things, you know, make sure that you're getting booked for things that are going to last for a while. So you're not constantly worried. Oh so yeah, that that's for me always been a big consideration is consistency. Mm, yeah. With that, do you have any final thoughts or advice you'd like to offer people who are wanting to get started in building a dance career for themselves or are kind of like already in that journey and wanting to like really go full time? I guess any final thoughts or advice you want to add before we wrap up? Yeah, just go for it. 
be smart about things, pay attention, learn as much as you can about as many things as you can. It's all going to serve you in your ability to set your prices and your ability to build relationships, maintain relationships, and stick to your guns with things like decide what your standards are. Try not to compromise, you know, and make sure that if you do compromise that it's on your your own terms and not that you feel like you have to but that you decide you want to. I think that's ultimately the biggest issue. thing that I've noticed, you know, you will essentially be working for yourself in most of these capacities. So you do have that sort of control. So use Mm -hmm. it. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I appreciate you um, just taking the time to do this. And Hopefully, we'll have you on the podcast here in the near future again as well, because I'm sure there's there's lots of different things that we touched on even just in this episode, but I know there's even more stuff outside of this episode we could probably go even deeper on. So definitely yeah, love yeah, for sure. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. But yeah, it's always good. Always good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. And thanks for everyone for listening. Um, If you have not already, please rate my podcast five stars because it really helps me out. And I will talk to you all next week. Bye.